We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. Our guest for today is Fergus Conley. He is a leading performance expert, the only coach to have full-time roles in every major sport, including soccer, Liverpool and Bolton, professional and college football with the 49ers and the University of Michigan, and rugby with the Welsh national team. We're going to talk about building an elite environment with your team. Fergus has phenomenal insight and linking the what, the why, the who, and the how together. We'll also talk about his latest book, 59 Lessons, that I'm currently flying through at the minute. So this podcast is brought to you by Total Football Analysis Magazine. Issue 7 is out now. Yet again, they deliver well over 100 pages of pure tactical analysis. Just this week, they received a recommendation from Mario Barich, Head of Analysis at Werder Bremers. So you know what they say, if it's good enough for a Bundesliga analyst... In their April magazine, they have features on Red Bull Leipzig, the keys to their defensive solidarity, Edison Cavani and Ruben Diaz, as well as a coaching article on pressing from a low block, 4-4-2. To get 10% off annual subscriptions, head to TotalFootballAnalysis.com, click on the magazine advert and add the discount code podcast all in capital letters at the checkout people always ask me what i'm reading and i always float between books and the total football analysis magazine especially now when the season is up and running when i miss a few games around the world total football analysis keeps me updated allows me to be a little bit more selective about the games i do watch when i get a chance so so highly recommend that all coaches go ahead and get a subscription to the magazine for sure here's fergus enjoy Fergus, thanks so much for joining me this morning on the Modern Soccer Coach podcast. Finally, excited to have you on. Well, thank you very much for having me. I've been a huge fan of, of your work and everything that you do for for the industry and for coaches. Um, you probably don't get enough enough credit, so thank you for, for inviting me. No, I really appreciate that. So we're, we're going to talk about coaching and building successful environments and then tying in your, your latest book, 59 Lessons, which... Um, almost finished uh, i was just telling you there before we started recording how much i'm enjoying it the first you kick off the story with a i, I had to take screenshots of it i hope you didn't mind send it to the other is <laughs> in the your bill sweetenham story about the dog is is like bang hits you right in the face being compassionately ruthless can you talk a little bit about the price coaches must pay to win at the highest level yeah i think um you see it with a lot of very good coaches, like you I mean, whether it's you know Ferguson or Allardyce or even British Cycling, which is um, you know where I stole that phrase from. And Bill Sweetenham told a brilliant story about trying to get across to a swim swimmer. It happened in Ireland actually. He told a story about trying to get a girl to prioritise whether if she had the choice between winning a gold medal at the Olympics or shooting her pet dog, you know, which would it be? And then the reaction he got from from the media and you know when the story got out like but he was trying to make a, a point i think that as coaches now 
particularly in you know certain environments and certain communities where kids have a lot of opportunities getting them to prioritize you know sport and you know competitiveness and winning and striving um, I think it's important to try to be able to emphasize the value of it um, but at the same time not to let it get out of control because you know on the other hand um, you can push kids too far um, and so I think that's where you know it helps you become a better coach understanding that there's a prioritization ruthlessness but there, you, you must be compassionate as well and have empathy not necessarily sympathy but have empathy to be able to understand where your players are and of course you know in football and soccer there's so many different personalities and kids that you're working with that you have to be able to um, treat each one of them you know independently so it's keeping that balance of um, being ruthless but compassionate at the same time and staying on those lines then of empathy and compassion you quoted Terence McSweeney love this it is not those who can inflict the most but those who can suffer the most who will conquer so how can coaches teach players and their teams to I suppose enjoy the suffering a bit more yeah I think you know when things get difficult sometimes when things get you know very difficult yes you have to work hard but when things are at their toughest um, it's about the ability to endure and to persevere and to hang in there and the other point as well that I think that quote's a very, very important point because sometimes as, you know, as players or as coaches, as people, we think it's how much we can inflict on someone else or it's how much we can bully or intimidate someone else. When in reality, the true strength is within yourself. How much, you know, as a coach, for example, how much patience can you have? Um, you know, how much can you concentrate as a player? Can you just hang in there a little bit more? Can you force your opponent to make mistakes? So particularly in, for example, in defending with a lot of players, um, you know, I'll use that phrase and that sentiment to explain to them, you have to endure um, the other player more than, than they're prepared to see. You have to, for the full 90 minutes, if I give you a man-marking job or that's what you have to do, that's your. That's what you have to endure. You have to concentrate so hard, so that for no minute of this game is your opponent going to feel as though they've gotten away from you. And that's some. It's not. You know, it's not how many times you can kick his ankles or anything like that. It's. You know, can you endure? Can, can are you disciplined enough to do this? And that's a personal, internal um, quality that you you want to inspire in others, because, and also in in coaching as well. It's not, you know, whether you can bully, intimidate someone. It's, you know, can you in, encourage them? But that's a personal thing. You have to look within yourself and find ways to motivate, inspire. Um, so, it's a, uh, you know, people. Some people read it and you know get, get the message. But I think the more and more that you read it and understand the ability to endure a little bit of discomfort, and eventually, all winning is about can you just endure a little bit more than the other person? Whether it's doesn't matter whether it's relationships, business, or sport um, when it comes down to competition just can you hang in there a little bit longer well surely in today's world in, in soccer world of you know the tactical geniuses and and you're watching these teams and we're 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 having these dialogues online it's not a the, the conversations we're not having is about enduring and suffering so surely we need to change our language or maybe our awareness 
Yeah, I think so. I think uh, I think everybody's you know trying to um, you know look for a magic bullet and trying to push you know uh, you know harder and you know everything like that. But I think <clears throat> I think a lot of coaches um, need to perhaps reflect a little bit more on themselves and be more self-aware rather than worrying about other other people. Like so, that's where you know when you're inflicting and when you're talking about inflicting or you're talking about what you're doing to other people rather than developing yourself and spending more time talking about the things that you have to deal with. And I think that, you know, the coaching communities, I think social media can help, but I, I don't think there is anything better than having coaches um, sitting down and speaking among themselves. I also tell a story in 59 Lessons about, I just stumbled upon it one night with Brian Noble, Tony Smith and Martin O'Neill happened to it's kind of like a, it's kind of like one of those jokes, you know, an Englishman, Irishman, Scotsman walk into a bar. But I was with Tony Smith, and you had, you know, three rugby league coaching legends, and you had Martin O'Neill, who was, I think he was the Irish soccer manager at the time, and they just happened to be, and I was in their company, in a, a hotel bar the night before one of the the Tony Smith's team was playing, and they were just sharing stories, and it, but it was fascinating about how they were sharing the difficulties that they had gone through and were going through, you know, and it even came up in the conversation, you know, how do you, like, do you struggle to sleep at night? And one coach was saying, yes, I, you know, night before a game, I can't. Other coach, another coach was saying, I have no trouble sleeping. And um, just listening to that, to those three incredibly experienced coaches share the difficulties and the challenges, you know, in this conversation, uh, was fascinating and you know I don't share any of the, the details in the book but it, it's because it was, it was a private conversation but the fact that they were able to sit down and reach out and share those intimate challenges I think it's something that as coaches we don't do and you cannot do that on social media mm. you have to do that in person more opportunities that you can go to the coaches are together is much better than sitting on Twitter for seven hours a day is what you're saying <laughs> yeah yeah, and, and the other thing too that's something that fewer and fewer coaches are doing there's actually a trend towards not going to seminars not going to conferences and the first you know when somebody the first question is is that going to be available online so i don't have basically so i don't have to leave and go to it um there's value in both but i I think people completely underestimate the value of meeting someone in person i think that's the other thing in the book perhaps that in hindsight you know the book is a series of stories, anecdotes, and lessons, but they were learned in person. Like it's, it's not really, there's nothing there about an email. Do you know what I mean? These are people <laughs> I met, spoke with, you know, it's, uh, and that's probably something, you know, I probably didn't really realize as, as I was writing the book, but as a coach, it's lonely. You know, even Alex Ferguson, I remember him saying it, you know, it's lonely and it's no, it's very, very lonely. And he would talk about how, um, you know, uh, Bobby Charlton would come and talk to him because, uh, Sir Bobby knew how lonely it was um, being the head coach, having to make tough decisions on your own. Uh, Coaching is a lonely business. One of my favourite lessons from the book uh, comes early. We only play away games. Tell yourself you're the best in the world before going to bed, but in the morning wake up and work like your second best. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the a lot of the lessons in the book are are quite simple lessons, if you will, but one of the greatest threats to any coach, a successful coach in particular, is complacency. You know, I tell the story about 
special forces commander we were just talking you know and we're just sharing stories and sharing you know learning opportunities and and i you know i was, I was just making the point i'm looking at i'm not comparing what i do with what you guys do at all like i mean we you know there's two big differences we get a second chance if we screw up you won't um and secondly we know when our games are because they're scheduled but you have to be able to you have to have a state of readiness or be able to go and he said fergus is one other difference we only play away games and uh it struck me that there's a, an incredible advantage in that because by keeping a mindset that you're always under a certain amount of threat um, or you're always competing uh, with the odds against you, it's the greatest way to avoid complacency. And complacency destroys so many careers where people start to believe perhaps that they have a magic system or they, they've got a perfect formula. When that starts to creep in, then you've got then you've got really big problems um so it's just it's a really good mantra to to keep that every single game that you're going to play is an away game even the ones at home and uh when i worked at the san francisco 49ers we actually just moved to a new stadium the levi stadium it was a fabulous stadium there's a lot of hype about it being the you know state of the art um but it became very apparent to us early on that while it was a new stadium, it was our stadium. Because it was new, it was really an away stadium for us. We hadn't got used to it. So, um, you know, it's it's a very important reminder just to keep in the back of your mind. You're always, you're always competing. And uh, in the book as well, you know, I made the point of writing a crawler where you where outline there's a balance to it. So that's why if you become overly obsessed with being in second place, it's very hard to relax. And that's why I say you have to reaffirm to yourself at night that, you know, you are good and you're doing a good job. But then in the morning, get up and go at it again. Uh, so it's keeping that balance between complacency and confidence. Yeah, well, what's the, what are the lookout, you know, from, you mentioned as well, complacency is a killer. What, what should coaches be in the lookout every day from players, from staff, from themselves? I think coaches get good at it after a while. I think... I learned a lot. Like I mean, Warren Gatlin, for example, is quite a quiet coach. Doesn't say a lot, but you know, coming when something happens or there's an issue or in game day, he'd speak, and it uh, was very, very powerful. And it struck me then the power of not talking all of the time. And I think coaches who listen and observe can become more aware of what's happening around them. So. Like good coaches, like Sir Alex as well, like you mean, um, Big Sam, they observe and listen more than they speak in total. It means that when you do speak, you're going to be listened to, but it also allows you to delegate tasks to your other staff. And that gives you the, the window, uh, the space to be able to observe and keep an eye out for complacency. And complacency. The, the clues really are a lack of humility, a lack of, or an overconfidence or an arrogance, um, and small little standards slipping. Now, you can't over-discipline people and everything can't be perfect because, you know, people aren't going to relax. But it's identifying the difference between people who are enjoying what they're doing and having fun and then disrespect for the game or disrespect for the process. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's what you, you have to be, uh, have to keep an eye out for and also understanding that everybody's a little bit different some people will have 
you know, particular style that may appear lazy, but it's actually that they're just relaxed. And, uh, and it's really about finding that balance. But the, the biggest impediment to that are coaches who are just talking all the time, jabbering on, and not self-aware and aware of what's aware of the state of their players and their, their assistant coaches and the, and the team. Long-term planning as a coach is no doubt a big challenge today. We were talking earlier on about social media and then also the bosses for of today all you know they, everyone wants to win tomorrow but what are the things you know you you encourage coaches to be forward thinking long term plan in the book what are the things that coaches can be Im- implementing or working on to make sure that they are working towards that sustained success the key here is that your only true competitor is yourself like i mean you don't even control the opponent you could go out and play the best team in your league tomorrow morning and they could turn up, I don't know, with their striker injured and two or three players missing, and you win. Like you, You're not in control of your opponent. The only thing you control is yourself, your teammates, or your, your team. or um, you know. So you're competing against yourself. It's important to, you know, particularly when you're managing upwards, to establish, look, this is where we are. This is our, these are our standards, and this is where we are going to get better. So that, you know, the boss... Uh, and the team, you know, goes both ways, but clearly to to redefine uh, after every win and to reset. This is what we are capable of playing. This is how we're going to get better, and this is the new standard, and this is what we're going to aim towards. And that stops people getting carried away with big wins and big losses because both are equally dangerous. So when you set that out from the outside, or from the from the outset. You've clearly established that our goal is constant improvement. You know, we're not going to, you know, you're not coming in to walk on water, you know, and you're not going to, you know, turn a bottom league team around. You're looking for consistent, steady progress. And uh, really emphasizing that is the, is the key. Um, and that's what sustained success is, is about. It's about stability competing against your, yourself and showing then as well, you know, that you actually care about the, the people around you and that you're on this path and, and you have a you have a vision but again you don't want your team to get carried away with you know to get depressed or upset with a huge loss but equally dangerous are big wins so you can't have it both ways and you have to keep everybody's feet on the ground and sit down and say okay did we the the real question is did we play up to our bet to the best of our ability that's the ultimately that's the only thing that is going to determine whether or not you're making progress or not. Yeah, do you think that maybe we missed that point on, on looking at great coaches like Gatland and Ferguson, that they actually deal with success better than a lot of other coaches? Oh, 100%. Like, I mean, Alex Ferguson, I think in the book, these are all stories that I was around, but <clears throat> there are so many other stories I mean, that I could have included that that I know of, that, but I wasn't there firsthand. Like, I mean, Sir Alex used to say that the the two most important words you can ever say to anybody are well done. Like he never used to say a great performance. So that was amazing. Like there were no um, superlatives in the locker room. It was just well done. And, and that kept people's, you know, everybody wanted to hear well done from him, but it wasn't like, you I mean that he was t- telling the world that you were the greatest player ever. Uh, at the same time, then when it was a tough loss, you know, he could uh, make, you know, keep people's feet on the ground. That is essential to keeping a focus. And it's not that you don't celebrate your wins. You have to, 
but you do it, um, you know, relatively, like, I mean, you, it's a relative celebration. You enjoy it, but you keep people's feet on the ground, and it's always a comparison to your standard. And that sets an internal pride in the organization that we're playing for ourselves, we're playing for each other, we're playing up to our standard. And all of the great teams and players I've been around, you know, really focus on what they can control and playing to their standard. It, it, it generates an internal, uh, you know, pride, you know, for each other and respect for each other as well. Um, but, you know, back to that point, like, you know, all of those great coaches, you know, either got fired or almost got fired from, from the roles that they were uh, really successful in. Uh, you know, Ferguson was lucky to hold on to his job early on. So, you know, you, having faith in what you're doing, uh, constantly improving is critical. I'll never forget David Moyes, you know, saying one time as a, at a conference, he was asked, what's the best advice you can give to a coach? And he said, survive. And But his point was early on, you know, get established, survive, get your system in place and build on that. How do coaches stay ahead of the game today and embrace technology and all the, the new gadgets that are that are coming out and the new ideas without getting blinded by it and then letting that take away from the things that you promote in the book, the intuition, the personal skills? Yeah, like I'm only 41, but I tell you what, I would, I'm glad that I'm not starting to coach now because I think that's the biggest challenge that young coaches have coming through. They're, you know, never before has there been so much data available uh, never before has there been so much information but never before has there been so little you know knowledge and wisdom uh, available because those are things that you have to yourself develop and it's very difficult I think for young coaches now to escape you know the information that's being fed to them and sold to them uh, it gives them less time. It's not a reflection on them. It's just a reflection on society. Uh, you know, uh, when I was coming through, it was a lot harder to find any kind of information. It was equally hard to find quality information, but uh, there wasn't as much confusion. I think there are two things in in society. I think that um, this is more a global issue, but the the current education system doesn't encourage or doesn't teach critical thinking. The second thing it doesn't teach necessarily is the ability to teach yourself how to learn or to learn how to learn. So I think for coaches, you know, when they're presented with new ideas, far too many people just accept it. That's why, like, I mean, when I present a seminar, I always say at the beginning, challenge me, argue with me. Just don't take what I say as gospel because I want to know, you know, how you're interpreting what I'm saying, but also challenge what I'm thinking. You know, I, I may not be right. I've got these ideas. I believe them. To be true, but you know, I want to get better as well. I think, and that's why you you know you go to these seminars and people just stay quiet and just accept things as gospel. And everybody needs to be challenged um, so that you can understand how you're going to apply it yourself. So that aspect of critical thinking is really important for coaches who want to continue to get better. And second thing, because there is so much nonsense out there. And the second thing then is the ability to learn how to learn. So you know can coaches sit back and observe a practice that they're managing or you know watch a rerun or a film of themselves practicing and go okay this is where I can get better this is where I can get better this is what I did well and so to continuously improve 
But you can't do, do those two things on social media. You have to spend the time yourself doing those. And the second, the, the thing is that with uh, social media at this point in time, um, because it's just so present, you have to remove yourself from that and concentrate on your own self-development to get better. And like I said, it was easier you know, for coaches to do a long time ago. Um, there, there are benefits to social media, but you know, sometimes when it goes too far, coaches don't appreciate the value of what it is they themselves are actually doing and being present in the, in the moment. Uh, so that, that's really, really important, I think, for, um, you know, for coaches to critically look at everything they're being presented with and to self-evaluate and look at practices themselves and um, you know, be critical thinkers. Yeah, staying alongside that, that personal relationship, that communication aspect, you, you talked about Bill Sweetenham and his no emails posted with, with Welsh Rugby. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how that communication, even though it's not social media, how even technology can impact uh, communication within an organization? Yeah, it was, um, we had an office, I mean, just like a standard cubicle office, maybe with 10 or 12 um, you know, offices and, you know, he, he had been there and he observed it. It was something that we didn't see ourselves, but guys were sitting maybe, you know, like a stone's throw, like, I mean, not even a stone's throw and guys were just sending one line emails to each other, you know, <laughs> and, uh, we thought it was being efficient and it probably was, but, uh, he made a wonderful point, you know, look at, just save your thought and go see when you, if the guy's not in the office or just go find him and say it to him. And, um, you know, I, you know, when, I, when I'm talking to coaches, I, I go, listen, you all know how dangerous it is. And they look at me with a confused face. I say, listen, any of you guys who have girlfriends and you send uh, a fast text that isn't completely clear and it sets off a chain of events where it was misread or read in the wrong way. Like, you know, words and text do not carry the same meaning as picking up the phone and talking to someone or, you know, speaking to someone face to face. And it was a wonderful reminder, just go and see the person or pick up the phone and talk to them. The other rule that, uh, the other rule I, I try and use all the time is if it, if it gets to the third text message, just call the person, you know, you've got these long email trade or text, you know, back and forth, just pick up the phone and get the conversation because we can misread text and email so easily. Um, and it, uh, it's, really valuable to be able to speak to someone because particularly in stressful environments we tend to try and overthink a response or interpret you know when it's around a difficult situation whereas when you pick up the phone and you talk to someone you hear their tone you you hear the tempo of their voice you understand exactly what they mean by what they say because in most cases it's not what you say it's how you say it and one of your interviews i heard you say that you could tell a lot about a culture when you arrive at the front desk or the security, meet the security. In your, in your experience, what sets those best cultures, those best environments apart? What, what stands out to you when you do have those experiences? Well, um, the way I describe culture to, to people is, um, and I, there's a model actually in, in Game Changer, but think of it like an iceberg. So, and you can use this example if you go to a restaurant, you go to a hotel, or you, you, you visit anybody. There are two things. After you leave, and if I ask you know, what was the environment like, what was the culture, what was the feeling, whatever it is, 
you'll base your response on two things, behaviors and artifacts. Behaviors are how you were treated, like how people behave towards you and, you know, interactions were people pleasant, you know, if, a, if it was at a hotel, even in a sporting organization, you know, were they pleasant to you, um, you know, friendly, whatever. And the second thing then is artifacts or the appearance. Um, so, you know, was it clean, tidy, you know, were, were things well presented, those kind of things. But underneath that, that's on the top layer, that's above the water, but underneath that, you've got those things are determined by the attitudes of the organization, which are in turn determined by the values of the organization. So when you go and you visit organizations, you have to be careful that you just don't skim the surface, but it's very, very difficult over a period of time to hide your true values and attitudes to people. Um, you know, in an organization, if, uh, you know, and that's why, that's what you'll, you'll base it on. And so it's important to create a, to create, obviously to create a good impression, but it's sustained over a period of time. So you'll see how, uh, people interact with, uh, with each other. You'll also see how people interact with the different, uh, people on different levels, if you will, within the organization. Like, um, you know, even at, you know, even at Manchester United, like, you I mean, how the staff spoke to uh, the receptionist's janitors was very, very telling about the importance of respect within the organization, even while Sir Alex was there and things like that. The same at Liverpool, the friendliness of the, of the staff around, uh, you know, around Melwood and the training ground. Um, it tells you a lot about the values that are important to, to the organization yeah uh, Cody Royal has a, a podcast that he interviews Joe Dumars and he was talking about when he signed when he was president of the Pistons when he signed a big player he would send his intern to pick him up from the airport but he wouldn't tell you know as far as the player was concerned it was the it was just a driver yes working for a company and he wanted a report to me that's just genius you know do you think those the people like in those cultures, do they place a premium on things that, you know, other artificial, I suppose, cultures just don't worry about? I used to do that with, I uh, used to send the psychologist actually in the, in to pick up the person at the airport along with, uh, um, with a driver for staff members. Right. Um, um, and it, it's not, it's not trickery or anything. It's just, you know, in a relaxed environment, you know, just to, um just to hang out and then the other thing you know sometimes you would uh leave them just with a little bit of time in the cafeteria and uh just see how they interact with staff and um just either the friendliness or respect for different people within the organization and uh one guy who you know always impressed me with um was Colin Kaepernick Colin Kaepernick would speak to the equipment guys the ball guys the ball boys the owners the staff every staff member the exact same way with the height of respect. He always made a point which is rarer, I think, nowadays, always made a point of turning to face someone and look them in the eye when he spoke to them, uh, which not everybody does, but um, it just demonstrated a respect for people, which, you know, uh, I always tell that because in the media, whatever, people have their own spins and people who either never met him or whatever want to, you know, Everybody has a, an opinion, but um, I think those things are important to tell a lot about a person. Uh, 
I had the same experience with um, uh, another special forces commander who, you know, while we were while we were reading, always made a point of turning to face and thank you know the server. Um, and uh, those those things are very very important. Um, and they're they're not important just as a reflection of you as a person. They actually serve a great practical importance because when pressure comes on. Trust me, if the ball boy hasn't taken care of your equipment, if uh, the people supporting the special forces operator hasn't made sure that uh, all of the gear is uh, squared away or if they've forgotten maybe to you know, make sure there's oil in the tank in the Jeep or all of those small things, if they don't uh, understand that you have a certain level of respect for them, corners will be cut or small things will be missing. Um, even if you go to, you know, you go to a hotel on tour, perhaps some of your players are a little bit disrespectful to the staff and you either, I don't know, mislay a power lead or something and you go looking for a power lead, you know, somebody will either make a huge effort to find you exactly what you need or they'll maybe take their time depending on, like, I mean, these are all small things, but trust me, when it matters, it's going to matter then. Uh, the legendary Vitor Frade told you to watch every coach <laughs> in their third year. This jumped out to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, and he, uh, listen, fascinating guy, one of the smartest guys I've ever been around. But he was, there were two things that I think he was talking about. First of all, it was to do with your integrity and honesty as a coach, you know. And I had this conversation with Gary Ridge at um, uh, WD40, and he, uh, uh, he's a CEO. It's a fabulous organization, a wonderful culture. And he, um, I was explaining this to him, and he said that's so true. Because I, I said to him, you know, I could come in and run your, run your company for three years, uh, and I said without knowing anything, I could come in and drive this culture hard, and be be a little bit more successful, possibly in year one. But if I'm if I'm not being honest and treating people well, they'll buy in for the first year because I'll promise them whatever. The second year they'll go. Well, he promised a lot. He didn't deliver, but he's promising again. I'll give him the benefit for one more year because it could be my fault. But by the third year, if I've not demonstrated honesty, integrity, I'm not being a good person, people will, people will not trust me. And you will see a sudden downturn in performance. It's the same in soccer, same in football, same in any sport. If you don't demonstrate integrity, people will not. Uh, and if you're not honest, by your third year, you will have lost trust because people can put up with it for a year or two. And that's why coaches who tend to lose coaches like every second year or have a high turnaround, that can be at the core of it. Now, from a performance perspective as well, he was talking particularly uh, about the reinforcement of the basics. So when you take over a team, he emphasized the fact that you should always, at the beginning of every season, start with the basics, your basics of play again and reestablish them. Because you know when you go through a season, you have key principles behind how you play, but sometimes they become blurred towards the end of the season. Then you have an off season and come back. And he emphasized start again with the basics every time. And he said that some coaches, you know, just restart from where they ended rather than restart at the at the very beginning again. So uh, it was a you know very very powerful um, you know lesson for me in that you know just. Watch coaches how they perform in their third year. Now, what some coaches get around it, and they do one of two things: they change the staff, 
or they or they rotate the players or if it's in a college system the players will automatically rotate and that somewhat saves them but um it's uh it's a, it's a very very good point on particularly on reinforcing the basics and building up again um and on being a, an honest coach uh, who can develop and establish trust in the organization yeah i'm fascinated by this do you think the premier league makes makes it harder because you know longevity is just not there so the the longer you're there almost does your message get watered down to to an extent oh i <laughs> I, I wrote an article on my site and um I think I said something like, you know, um, you know, sometimes, you know, coaches don't get three years. I got an email from Sam Allardyce. He said, sometimes coaches don't get three months, Fergus. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like, you I mean, I think people are under a huge amount of a huge amount of pressure. But this is why, you know, I think I think one of the other things in society and in coaching today, and I tell this to young coaches all the time, take your time becoming a head coach, you know, Take your time because, and try and learn from as many diverse methods and methodologies, and as possible. Don't think that the first one you're presented with is right. You know, learn, evolve, and critically analyze everything, so that then when you're ready to move, you've got a, an established system. And Mourinho is the best example. You know, he he spent a lot of time under Sir Bobby, then he spent a lot of time under Van Gaal, uh, and he'd learned from Vitor Frade. So he had all of these different learning experiences. And then he became a head coach. But before he did, he took a period of time where he sat down and wrote out his philosophy. So he had a, you know, he learned under Sir Bobby with his interpersonal skills and his system and his generosity. And, uh, and then he learned under Van Gaal, a very Dutch methodical way of thinking. He was able to com- combine both of those. And I would encourage coaches to try and do the same. Learn from conflicting opinions so that you can form the system that best suits your personality. And then, only then, put your head above the parapet and become a coach. Um, and when you've got that established, now you've got your vision. You can build, you know, your your staff, your organization around you, and you can. And if you've got that level of honesty, you'll have trust, and the the staff will stick through you when things get difficult. If you don't have that, what you're going to do then is you you feeling the pressure will start to look for scapegoats. And you might change your fitness staff, you might change your assistants or whatever it is. But if you do that, you're not developing and refining your your system, your methodology. You're not gaining the trust. So then what will happen are people will see things, but they'll be afraid to come to you because they won't want to, they don't feel there's a level of trust or they can come to you in confidence. Mm. So that's why it's so important to you know, for young coaches, don't be in a rush. You want to get there and stay there. You just want, don't want to get there fast. And um, you want to have a, a system that you understand and that you can continue to refine and develop. Yeah, just on the staff in there. So, again, you, you talked about changing the staff, but we're also led to think that hiring more coaches and imp- you know adding more to our staff is a sign of growth and success. But you specifically point out in the book that it can be actually be harmful to teams? Oh, absolutely. I think I think the trend recently is, you know, more is better or bigger is better. And that um, you see it in you see it in industry quite a bit where there's a critical point when the organization grows beyond it. Like um I had a 
brilliant conversation many years ago with um, this Kevin Plank at Under Armour, but he just happened to be um, in a group when uh, they had broken into Europe with actually with the Welsh rugby team at the time. But the the conversation was around how do they stay hungry. Um, you know, in some cases, it's easy to be the underdog in business. It's easy to be the underdog in sport. So, you know, you've got a small, compact group. People are firing ideas around. You're aggressive. But then when you reach a certain point, um, it's harder to control uh, a bigger organization. It's the same with the backroom staff. You know, when it's small, competitive, and people are, you know, uh, competitive in a good way for, for everybody and everybody's bound together. But your staff can reach a critical point where then there's so many people it becomes hard to manage everybody, hard to take care of everybody off the field, to care of their families, to care of their concerns. And then uh, you've got more and more egos that you have to take care of. So, um, you know, the best teams, like even, like, you know, the most successful organizations have always had a small, tight, uh, agile uh, multi-talented groups of people, not just groups of specialists, and um, I think that's key. Now, the one there are exceptions, like Sam Allardyce is probably one of the best people I've ever seen to manage large backroom teams, but but that's a unique skill set. I think most coaches are far more comfortable managing smaller groups, um, but yeah, Big Sam was, but Big Sam's ability. Like as a leader and as a coach, I think you know I haven't been around many like him. But keeping a small, tight backroom, assigning multiple tasks to them, um, uh, you know, means that you don't have just a team of specialists. You've got a team of generalists around you who will, you know, the, will get the job done for you. Yeah, that that period in Bolton Wanderers where he was expanding and going into the science and doing a high level of innovation within the game how was he you know he's, he seems a very bubbly personality was he you know was he going into different departments was he asking them to come to him how did he manage that daily well he um big sam one of his he, he was very very good at um keeping a big picture vision he knew what he wanted and of course you know, he started his coaching career in Limerick uh, as well. I'm sure you remember that. And he, uh, so he learned a lot, I guess, in Ireland coaching with small groups. But he had a he had a very clear vision of what he wanted. He employed people and allowed them be the best that they could be, and he supported them to the hilt. Um, that was the one thing about and you. As a result, people who've worked for him will always speak very highly of Big Sam. You know, he would support anything that you wanted to do. Uh, he was straight. There was no, um, you know, bluff or pretense with him. Um, and when somebody backs you to the hilt, when you go to them and tell them what you want to do, and he says, yeah, uh, I'll back you. Now, it's not a case that he would give everybody everything all the time. But when he did, he backed you to the hilt or he argued with you, you debated and there's another coach, Scott Johnson, who's uh, a rugby coach who's now in Australia. Very same thing. Like he will, he wanted to hear your idea. You had to convince him. But if you if he you convinced him that it was a good idea, he would back you to the hilt. And you will do anything for a coach like that. You would do anything for him. But um, because that's that's what trust is. That's what honesty is. And and then you've no problem going to those coaches when you see something, an issue coming up on the horizon because you know that. They're not 
going to, you know, um, they, they want to hear the, the bad news, might not be happy, but they, they really want to hear it and they're going to support you. So, um, but he was always prepared to keep, to be on the cutting edge, um, but never let it, um, he never let sports science drive the bus. He was aware of it, always kept his finger on the pulse. I think that's what good coaches do. Um, to steal a quote from another coach, you know, you, you don't want to be the pioneer, you want to be the settler. So you want to know what's going on. You don't want to be wasting a lot of time always on the bleeding edge, but you want to be the best at implementing it. And Sam Allardyce's influence on the Premier League is only matched by uh, Alex Ferguson because I would argue possibly every single team now has somebody who worked for Sam Allardyce at some stage or another in sports science and analytics and data and video and film. Uh, he his influence on the Premier League is is uh, you know is far beyond what many people realise. Mm. Um, last couple for you. Humility in two thousand nineteen. What is it? How important is it? And how can coaches get better at it? Uh, Dan Path is a sprint coach in Atlas in Arizona, and he says you, you know if you're coaching honestly yourself every day, you get humbled every day. You know, you never know it all. You're always learning. Um, I think, you know, Christ, I, you know, I keep learning so much. And, um, you know, you, you keep, you have to, again, it comes back to critical thinking, challenging your ideas, challenging your philosophy, challenging beliefs that you have. Um, there's always so much to learn. Um, and I think the truly, the truly great coaches are, uh, secure and confident in who they are as people, but they're humble in who they are as a professional. And I think it's finding that that balance, I think, is what coaches should strive for. Like the best people I've been around, whether it's in military or in sport, know who they are and they've got a confidence about who they are. That doesn't change, but they're constantly trying to learn and evolve. Um, you know, some of the best people I've been around you know, or people who are well-known names in sport, but they'll open up and they'll ask, like, you'll hear lines like, why do you think that is? Or how can I get better? Or what do you think of this? And it, it's that openness and constantly refining the idea. That's that's what humility is. Um, you know, nothing's, uh, you know, nothing is uh, beneath them as people. Is it more lacking today than it was 10 years ago? When I get asked questions like this, I always try and be positive. Be positive. <laughs> I think uh, I think social media doesn't help. I think people, you know, do try and you know present, which I guess they should do. You know, always the the sunny side, but you know, uh, you know, and the, the great achievements and everything, but they can be misleading. Um, so I think that um, I, I think it's keeping a balance on on social media, not being swayed by the fact that look, you might be. You might not be having the, the best set of results, but you have to find you know wins in it. But it's, I think it's just important to keep things in perspective. Like I mean, at the end of the day, um, like I said, your only competition really is yourself. Are you getting better? And only you can can judge that. But um, like the best organizations have that drive and that humility, and they generate it within themselves. Like I mean. If you're playing on a, you know, if you're playing for the All Blacks or you're playing with Manchester United or, um, you know, Barcelona or any of these great teams at Manchester City, 
you're kept humble by the talent that you have around you, um, but and by the coaching staff and everybody. You know, there's there's just that humility that is it becomes a self driver and an innate driver. It prevents. It's the greatest cure for complacency mm-hmm. and arrogance because when that creeps in. Man, so that you, you're gonna, it's like a boxer, you're gonna get knocked out, you might not see it coming. That's the biggest problem with it. Like, I mean, that's why humility is so important. If arrogance creeps in and the whole or nobody in the organization sees it, it's like that boxer who goes into a fight and he just hasn't put in the work and he gets pinged in the first round and he knows he's not gonna make it through this fight. And it's like it suddenly just dawns on him, I'm in trouble here. And that happens when you go a goal down early on and you go, We're, we're gonna struggle in this one, we're gonna be lucky to get out of it. Um, so humility is the greatest cure for complacency Brilliant. Or for Oregon sorry Brilliant. Uh, last one for you so the 59 lessons you said was a book or sorry was a tribute to all the coaches who helped you interested to hear your thoughts on how you feel coaches today at all levels could give something back to the to the young people or to the people who are a lower level coming through yeah well a few things uh I wrote the book because, as, you know, as I was writing Game Changer, there were a lot of these stories came through, and I couldn't put them in the book, and I didn't want the book to be about me, but I wanted to share these stories for the next generation coming through, because some of the guys aren't around anymore. Like, I mean, uh, Gary Speed, God bless him. Like, I mean, a beautiful guy to be around, lovely person, and there's a way of thanking people like him for lessons that he taught me, and maybe I didn't get the opportunity to thank him for, and also. You know, people, I think, it, you know, for us as coaches, sometimes people think, oh, well, you know, wow, you're amazing or that's fascinating. Look, everything that everything that I do, everything that I've presented, I've learned from these people mentioned in these pages. Um, and it's a way of, you know, explaining to other coaches, you know, you have great learning opportunities all around you. Um, pick up all these lessons and they don't have to be from sport. You can take these lessons um, and become a better coach as a result, but also then to pay it, you know, pay it forward to the next generation coming through. Because I, you know, like I remember, and I it did cross my mind from time to time, you know, being in being in San Diego, like I mean, and struggling to see if I had enough money to try and get out to and the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista to spend time with a sprint coach, you know, um, who gave me his time generously. You know, for for free because he knew I didn't have anything. Um, so there's so many people helped me uh, on my journey. I wanted to thank them, and uh, I wanted to to pass it on, and also just to encourage that within the community. Like um, at the very end, you know, I tell a story about how I sent an email to a, a therapist, and uh, I was going to go back and do medicine. Actually, I'd been accepted to go back to the Royal College of Surgeons in Dublin, but I thought about doing it in. Uh, Toronto, I reached out to uh, a physical therapist called Mike Prebeg, and I asked him for some advice. And this is years and years ago, and I'll never forget the first line of his email was, uh, yes, absolutely, more than happy to help you. A lot of great people have helped me on my journey, so I'm happy to help anybody else. Mm-hmm. And that line stuck with me, and I thought, um, if I ever get the opportunity, anybody ever asks me for help, uh, I'll always remember that line and pay it forward. Brilliant, brilliant. Great way to finish it. Fergus, thank you so much. I'm going to recommend uh, that every coach picks up a copy of the 
Although it took me about two years to read Game Change. <laughs> Flying past this a bit quicker. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, uh, I've learned my lesson. I'm never going to write a book quite as big as Game Change or a game, <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll break it up. I'm trying to actually... Uh, uh, and I, I've, uh, I've got an, another book coming out this uh, this summer, but it was, um, it was actually originally going to be one big book, but I'm, I'm going to have to, to break it up and reduce it so that people can actually put... Uh, the book in their bag 59 lessons you can actually put in your pocket so it's an easier read top class top class Vegas thank you really appreciate it and, and keep up the great work Gary likewise thank you very much sir thanks for having me really appreciate it thanks so much to Fergus for his time and his insight there I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did there's an awful lot to take away from that and it probably depends where you are at or where your team are at in the journey but what jumped out to me was that segment he had on inflicting versus enduring when he talked about understanding the ability to endure a little discomfort every now and again probably a lot of coaches are going to say yeah my players need that for sure but then he's actually directing it or encouraging or challenging coaches to do it a little bit more be a little bit more self-aware more reflection more perspective that's needed in the coaching community and then ultimately more conversations where we're sitting around and and discussing things that we're all dealing with and maybe help ourselves through that there social media he said isn't the platform for that and i completely agree with him i use social media an awful lot but i probably held back on the past year just with a certain level of engagement or interaction with it because you know i i believe social media is very very important but i don't think coaches should use it as their coaching platform information yes ideas yes a little bit of inspiration yes absolutely but it's not a canvas for coaching coaching canvas is with your players coaching canvas is with the coaching community so i really like the way fergus is encouraging us and challenging us to do a little bit more go to a few things get out in front of coaches be around more coaches talk about the challenges we're facing because ultimately that's how you're going to improve that's how you're going to brainstorm is taking a little bit of ideas from people yes of course but also that perspective um, and I think when you do that you also become a little bit more open-minded and maybe the players benefit from that as well so I would highly recommend that you check out Fergus's book and I, and I was being serious there it took me ages to get through Game Changer and I'm flying through his new one it's so easy to read there's so many stories but what I really enjoy about it are that the stories are about different viewpoints from coaches from different sports from business from military that can be taken into any environment and worked on with your players and it's great just doing them having a coffee in the morning this morning I just picked up read about 10 pages drove into work and and it just gives you a lot of things to think about that that sometimes are staring you right in the face but same time really really valuable for coaches so as always we'd love to know what you think of that we'd love to know what what resonated with you at gary Crane on instagram at gary Crane on twitter hope you enjoyed it thanks for listening to the podcast have a great week goodbye Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.